All right. Uh, I'm going to pray for our time. Keep your Bibles open to Haggai 1. And uh, if you're a person who likes to write, keep your outlines also open. And let me pray for our time, and we'll look into Haggai 1. Um, gracious God and uh, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we are thankful for your word. Uh, now we pray that you would speak and that we would hear through your spirit and understand it in order to love, fear, and obey it. Um, for your glory, uh, we pray this prayer in your Son's name. Amen. Um, hands up if you think life is busy. Okay, keep your hands up. If in the past week, you have said or felt, I am busy. Pretty good. Keep your hands down. You see, being busy, um, I'm not going to judge you, don't worry. You see, being busy is the fashion fad of living in a big city like us. us. Uh, not that life is not busy in a country town, uh, but it's more popular and common to hear uh, from city dwellers, latte sippers, and <laughs> Opel card users that life is busy. And this picture uh, captures our feeling. It says, I'm too busy to tell people how busy I am. Uh, the teenagers are busy doing their schoolwork, the uni students' assignments, the workers' their work, moms busy with their kids. We are busy, no doubt about it. So we try to do different things uh, to cope with this busyness. Uh, we make neat Excel tables, if Microsoft is your thing, uh, or a spreadsheet if you're a Mac lover. And you try to make this neat timetable to manage time in our schedule. But then and there are some who rely on experts or gurus to manage time. So they sit in a time management course, uh, watch a YouTube video, or the best, they get an app. And then there are those who just don't care. They're like, whatever. But generally, we all agree that life is busy. And we are busy. And what this busyness does, it's either it shows us our priorities, that is, it reflects our priorities, what are our priorities, or instead, it forces us to get our priorities right. And we all know that getting our priorities right is important. We have heard it many times from parents, bosses, friends, colleagues. Young lad, get your priorities straight. Young woman, get your priorities straight. But why is it important? Well, why is it important to get your priorities right? Well, the picture says straight. Um, well, because... Priorities manage, or should I say priorities, control our time. Our money, our whole self, our life. Priorities, our, our priorities owns us. How? You see, if our priority is health, then we spend our time, our money, our energy in gym, fitness, sports, or whatever, and we spend a lot of time on 75% less fat and sugar diets. If our priority is relationships, then we spend most of our time and money and emotions in people, our friends, our families, and the most important, Facebook. Our priorities 
owns us. Another interesting fact about our priorities is that it shows, our, shows us our heart. It's a window into our hearts. The things we love, the things we desire, the things we want. Because, as Thomas Cranmer, an English reformer, an early Anglican Archbishop, if you don't know who he is, he's an important person for this church. Just, just remember that. He says, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. You see, no matter how busy we are, how ordered or disordered our priorities are, we do get to do what we want to do. We do get to do what we desire to do. We do get to do what we love to do. So we do get to take the holiday we want. We do get to watch the sport or the episode that we like. We do get to meet the people we want. We do get to eat the food we love. And what does this all show us? Or what does this all tell us? It tells us that our busyness is related with our priorities and our priorities are related with our hearts, which is related to our loves. And so Thomas Cranmer says, what the heart loves the will chooses and the mind justifies. But why are we talking about this? Well, chapter 1 of Haggai is about getting your priority right. It's about a priority that trumps all. A priority that we should love. So let's open Haggai 1 and... Read verse 1. Haggai 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. What's going on? Who is Haggai? Darius, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. Cool names, but who are these guys? Well, Haggai is a prophet who is offering a divine comment on human affairs. So God is speaking through Haggai into a particular situation. And what is the situation? Anybody? Well, it's time to refresh our biblical history a little bit. And so it's time for a history lesson. It's going to be a long history lesson, so stick with me. Do not go to sleep. All right? So around 6th century B.C., in 597 BC, Babylon was a, the superpower, the super world power around that time. And the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, came in, into trouble with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II. Judah was crushed, that the southern kingdom was crushed, and their king, Zedekiah, was deported to Babylon after he witnessed the slaughtering of his sons. And then a decade later, the commander of the Babylonian army enters back into Jerusalem after doing all what they did. And what did he do? All right, let's open two kings to see what he did. Let's open two kings. It's page 353 if you're using the black church Bibles. Two kings, um, chapter 25. So it's after Samuel before Psalms and Chronicles. 2 Kings, chapter 25, verses 8 to 12. Please have a look. 
On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzardan, the commander of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the commander of the guards tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Nebuzadan, the commander of the guards, deported the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the population. But the commander of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be wine dressers and farmers. King deported, his son slaughtered, the temple burned, the city destroyed. This is what we call exile in biblical history. A writer comments about exile. He says that exile meant death, deportation, destruction, and devastation. It was a huge blow to the Jews, an absolute tragedy. It seemed like that the Jewish history had come to an end. But then many years later, decades after, a new empire and a new king came into world power. His name was Cyrus. In 539 BC, Cyrus, the Persian king, took over the whole empire of Babylon. And his empire became the next superpower. And you can see that, the extent of his empire in the map. And so Cyrus is the king of all these places. And during his first year, as he became king, he issued a decree. What was the decree? Well, let's open our Bible to Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. That's on page 418. I told you it's going to be a long history lesson. Ezra chapter 1, uh, verse 1, page 418. Starting from verse 2. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among his people, may his God be with him and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he lives, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So Cyrus allowed all people group uh, in his empire who were conquered and captured by Babylonians to return to the land in order to restore their religious practices to their gods. So people of Judah packed their bags and they were also sent back to rebuild the temple of Yahweh, their Lord God, with the required assistance. However, not everyone returned to Judah at the same time. There was a first group of people, the first wave of exiles, uh, under the leader of Shez Bezar. Uh, he, they returned around 538 BC. And under him, the people started building the, the temple uh, they made an altar, they started, uh, 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 they started sacrifices and began offerings. But very soon this project was stopped and abandoned for different reasons. Why? 
because there was foreign enemy threats. So there was neighboring threats and there were foreign enemy threats, the Samaritan threat. And there was the issue of survival for the returnees. Like they didn't have much money and the city was ruined. That we, as we read in Two Kings, it was a broken city and there was, there was mass famine and poverty. It was not a favorable time. Then two decades have passed. It's been a while. And, and if, you, if you want to open the, the Bible timeline. And so two decades have passed. And this is where we are in Haggai. And now the king, the Persian king, is no more Cyrus. It's, it's Darius who took over the throne through controversial means. And so during this time, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on 29th August, 520 BC. Yep, that is the date. Because it says, the second year of King Darius on the first day of the sixth month. So on 29th August, 520 BC, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the first prophet after exile. And the first thing he says is verse 2. So back to book of Haggai. Uh, So first thing he says is verse 2. See what he says. Please have a look. The Lord of hosts says this. These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's a comment from God about the people. These people say that the time has not yet come. Notice how the Jews, God's chosen people, God's children, are described as these people, like our outsiders excluded. Not my people, nor my children, nor my chosen possession, but these people. And what are these people saying? The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, the temple. It has been two decades now. People have been in the land for a while. Life has kicked off. There has been renovation, restoration, and reestablishment. But nothing is happening for the temple. The time has not yet come. And we understand. We sympathize with these people because building of the temple was not a small project or a light task. So Zerubbabel is a Davidic descendant, technically a king, the great-grandchild of David and Solomon. But here, he's just a puppet governor under the Persian king, Darius, who's meant to dance at the music of Darius. What can he do? The time has not yet come. Life has been hard for the returned exiles. The people of Judah less in number. They're facing major economical recession. They have less resources. And to top it off, August and September is meant to be the season of harvest. But for them, it's been a season of famine, drought, and poverty. The time has not yet come. There's also threat from the Samaritan neighbors and also a possible threat from the king of Persia, Darius, who could look at them rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the city as a rebellion, as an effort to reestablish the Judean kingdom. The time has not yet come to rebuild the temple. But God, God looks at the heart. He has a deeper insight. He has like a hidden camera just fixed on people's heart. Please look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The people said, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, the temple. But God asked, the time for you yourselves to have your houses has come? If you look at verse 4, the pronoun used, the pronoun you is used three times. If the greatest commandment of God is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength, these people are saying the greatest command is to love yourself with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this is a mantra of our society also. Keep calm and love yourself. Life was hard, difficult and challenging for the Jews back in the land. But it did not stop them from putting themselves first. Their life, their house, their plans was their priority. They lived in paneled houses. The word paneled, the word uh, translated paneled over here could also mean covered or roofed. But what this word implies is that these people have a house, a finished, a completed house, a roof over their head. Whereas God's house, God's temple lies in ruins. An unfinished collection of dirt, mud and rubble waiting to be restored. Uh, Moore College, that's where I study, is going through construction. And I've got a picture for us to, to show that what does a place in ruins look like? That's where Dave, I, Matt, we all study over here. We just sit there in, in that free space. <laughs> um, but this is how a place in ruins look like. And, and these people have a have a paneled house. Uh, but why? Why is God going on and on and saying, why is rebuilding of the temple so important? Why is it a, such a big priority, a priority that trumps all? Well, first, the temple was the physical symbol of God's presence, His dwelling place. So temple meant, meant God is present. Not that He was confined to a physical building, but around that time in history, God chose to commune, relate, and meet with his people through a physical temple. It was a place of worship, to sacrifice to God, to relate to God, to have faith in God, to obey God, and to give offerings. So without the temple, there's no presence of God, and there's no worship of God. That's the first reason. And the second reason was that the temple was a reminder of the Davidic covenant. What is the Davidic covenant? It was a promise of God to David in 2 Samuel 7 that God will raise a descendant of David and he will establish God's kingdom and his kingdom forever. And he will build a house for God. So it was a promise of God's everlasting kingdom through the Davidic king, Messiah. The loss of land and temple in exile meant loss of God's promise. The Davidic covenant that was lost. That's what it meant. Those people started doubting God's faithfulness and God's truthfulness. But now they're back in the land. It means the promise remains. God is faithful. And so the Davidic descendant, Zerubbabel, the grandchild of David and Solomon, should be busy building the temple. So no temple, no fulfillment of God's promise. 
So no temple, no worship, no temple, no fulfillment of God's promise. And what are these people saying? Repeat after me. For the time has not yet come. But God continues to speak to them. Please look at verses 5 and 6. Now the Lord of hosts says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. God says, just stop and think carefully. Consider your ways, give a careful thought, mull over your condition. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but you have never enough. You drink but your thirst is not quenched. You put on clothes but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Capture the imagery. They're putting extra hours in, but not even getting the minimum wage. They're eating and eating and drinking and drinking, but the hunger is not dying, the thirst is not being quenched. They're putting jumpers, coats, scarves and beanies, but they're shivering in cold. And they're filling money bags with money, which has got big, fat holes. Why? Why? Because these people have returned to the land, but not to God. They have resettled, but not repented. They have started building, but not the temple. They were meant to enjoy blessings from God in the land. But instead, all they have is curse and misfortune. Why? Because according to Deuteronomy 28... God was meant to be their number one priority, their first love. A priority that trumps all. They were meant to obey God and enjoy blessings. But if they do otherwise, then it's curse, affliction and judgment. No temple, no God. No God, no obedience. No obedience, no blessing. And in verse 8, Now God directly commands them to build the temple. Please have a look at verse 8. Go up into the hills. Bring down lumber and build the house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. God says, stop ignoring the urgency of building the temple. Stop shoving the priority of building my temple over your things. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Because once the temple is built, God's presence will be there and God's promise will remain. And these people can honor, praise and worship and give glory to their God Almighty. And Jews have to understand this. That the priority of giving glory to God by building the temple is the priority that trumps all. Now you may say, gee, God, that sounds a bit selfish. Wanting God wanting His own glory? I thought you were a loving God. Me in the receiving end, you at the giving end. But I have a poor example to show or to share how it's fair and good. Now I've got a Mac. I've got a Mac computer. I bought it two years ago. And generally I'm pretty impressed by it. 
However, this week, it gave up on me. The hard disk crashed. Uh, now, for the people who don't know what I'm talking about, for the arts people, just kidding. It's like this, <laughs> this massive store or a cupboard where you store things, okay? Um, well, the hard disk crashed and I was pretty upset with it. My Mac is not honoring me. It's not working properly. I wanted to do things for it, use it for what it is created for and what it is brought for. But now it's rebelling against me. It ain't giving me glory. You see, human beings are fearfully and wonderfully created in the image of God to reflect His beauty, splendor and glory. And these Jewish people were not only created by God in love, but it was a nation saved, rescued, given an identity, a land and blessings from God. They exist because of God and His glory. And by denying the importance and the urgency of building the temple, they're denying their existence, their identity, their God, the glory of God. It should be a priority that trumps all. Continuing along in verses 9 to 11, God says, I brought your labor, your toil and hard work to ruins. Because you left my house to be in ruins. If my house is in ruins, everything you do is going to be in ruins. He says, if you withheld yourself from building my temple, I'm going to withheld my blessings from you. I'm no priority, you are no priority. But wait, the people responded. The people responded. Have a look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, the high priest uh, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. They got the message. They obeyed God and showed reverence to God's holy words. They now comprehend. They got it. Building the temple for the glory of God is the priority that trumps all. And now they need to get started. And God, who is not a bully or a tyrant or a heavy taskmaster, He tells them this priority and then gives them a promise and the power. Please look at verses 13 and 14. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest, uh, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jezedek, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began the work on the house of Yahweh, of horse, horse of Hosts, their God, um, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So God gave them the priority that they were not getting it, but He gave them the promise, I am with you, and the power that He stirred their spirit. Building the temple for the glory of God was not an easy task. They might lose money, they might go to exile again, and some may maybe even lose their life. But in the midst of all the challenges, trials, and hardship, God promises them, I am with you. 
I am with you. Not somebody ordinary, but the great I am. Lord of the heavenly armies says, I am with you. The creator of heaven and earth says, I am with you. The God Almighty is with them. And they start building the temple. They were like, it's time to build the temple. And that brings us to the end of Haggai 1. Not like a happy ending, it's like a Disney movie. Uh, problem solved, back to work. But what is this chapter teaching us? What is this? What does it mean for us? People now, do we have to go and build the temple? This place does need a little bit of construction and color. Um, but do we have the same priority? Yes. How? You see, the temple symbolizing God's presence and God's promise is no more a physical place, according to the New Testament. So the temple is no more a physical place, according to the New Testament, but is a physical person, Jesus. The temple in Haggai was pointing towards Jesus, who became the meeting point of God and man. And through his death and resurrection, that we celebrated last week, Good Friday and, the, and Easter, the first Good Friday and Easter, and through his death and resurrection, the big black wall of sin was removed that stood between the perfect God and a sinful man. So when people like you and me believe in Jesus, not only do we meet God, but receive his promise also. We too become the temple of God through Jesus. So the temple is Jesus and because we are in him, we people become the temple of God with Jesus as the head. So if now the temple of God is the people in Christ, that means Christian, that means you and I, then how do we build it? Any clues? By obeying the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, 19, 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the same priority for us building God's temple, but that, that temple is Jesus and his people in him. And the way we get people connected to Jesus and get connected to us is by making disciples. But we all are busy. But not busy. Are we busy in this way? Making disciples? We all have our priorities, but is it ourselves? Keep calm and love yourselves and make yourself something? Or is our priority making disciples for the glory of God so that the temple of God, that is you and I, could reflect the glory of God? This is the presence and the glory of God right now. God working in each one's life from different parts of the world.
Sorry, I'm, I'm the owner. Um, and Jesus says, go, so, so Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Are we saying the time has not yet come? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Are we saying, I've got to build my house, my castle, my future, my plans, my bank balance, my security. For some, some of us, it will mean letting go of a promotion to go and make disciples of all nations. For some of us, it could mean to letting go of that job, that holiday, that important relationship so that we can go and make disciples. It will be costly. It will be challenging. It will be hard. But Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Next slide. Let's go make disciples for the glory of God is the priority that trumps us. There's still chairs empty away in our, in our church. There's still places in the world that have other temples, but they don't have a temple of God. Who will go? Who will go and build the temple? Someone chose to tell us and make us disciples of Christ. But the buck should not stop there. So let's pray to God to help us through His power and promise. Um, gracious Heavenly Father and great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we thank you um, that you chose us in your Son. And we pray that you would give us the the desire, the passion, uh, the power and the promise and the urgency um, to go and make disciples of all nations, not just in the city of Sydney, but beyond Sydney, in, world, in places which is going to be hard. But let us not go alone, but with the promise from you that you are with us and in the power of your Spirit. So, Father, we can live for your glory alone. And so, that, Father, you can be worshipped. Because to you belong all glory, honor, and praise. We pray this as a church in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.